three things that should be required for weight loss research. This is the Weight and Healthcare newsletter. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing and or sharing at weightandhealthcare.com. I've written plenty about the sorry state of weight science, an area of science wherein research that would get a freshman flunked out of their intro to research methods class gets published in peer-reviewed academic journals, some of which are actually owned and operated by the weight loss industry. Today, I'm offering three things that, if they were required of all weight loss studies, would instantly create massive improvements in the information that could be gleaned from these studies by healthcare practitioners, the media, and the public at large. First, five-year follow-up with required publication. We have a century of data showing that the vast majority of people lose weight in the short term, about a year, and regain weight in the long term, about two to five years. The weight loss industry has known this for decades and has taken advantage of that knowledge by creating studies with timeframes designed to capture the period of short-term weight loss and not capture, or at least obfuscate, the weight regain, including by their famous two-year studies, in which they claim something like, all subjects regained some weight but remained below their baseline weight, forgetting somehow to mention that the trajectory of their weight gain was going straight up when the study conveniently stopped looking. Let's talk about a couple of arguments against this. The first thing I often hear is that it's difficult to get funding for studies that have five years of follow-up, and I don't doubt that's true. It's also true that a ton of this research is funded by the diet industry itself, so they are refusing to fund long-term studies and then using their refusal as a reason not to do long-term studies. Nice work if you can get it. Regardless, if the FDA required five years of follow-up in order to approve an intervention, then those funding challenges would have to be solved. Better no research than research that promotes interventions which are not only almost certain to fail long-term, but can actually create significant harm through weight cycling. We've already had a hundred years of short-term research followed by long-term, often not captured or appropriately reported, regain. Let's not sign up for a hundred more. Another argument is that shorter studies should be funded to see if it's worth longer-term follow-up. This would be reasonable if the weight loss industry could be trusted to be clear in its published research and with the media that the results of these studies are not appropriate to draw conclusions from or to put into practice, and if the media could be trusted to be clear of that as well. Unfortunately, we've seen that the weight loss industry cannot be trusted in this regard, and the media has been more than happy to act as a co-conspirator, either on purpose or out of ignorance. So, I propose that in order to start the research, five years of funding must be secured. The funding can always be canceled at any time and the remaining funding repurposed. Which brings us to the second part of this section. Something that isn't necessarily well known is that research isn't required to be published. This has long been a tool used by the pharmaceutical industry to artificially inflate positive results. They simply don't publish the negative results. If you're interested in digging deeper into this, I highly recommend the book Bad Pharma, How Drug Companies Mislead Doctors and Harm Patients by Ben Goldacre. It was published 10 years ago and tragically is still incredibly relevant today. The people who currently get to make the decisions of whether or not to publish the studies are often the funders, which often includes the weight loss industry, 
or the researchers, who were often direct employees of the weight loss industry and funders, taking payments from the weight loss industry and funders, and or have the careers and finances pinned to the weight loss industry. This allows them to serve us dinner on their best china while hiding a kitchen full of shattered dishes and ripped paper plates. By requiring that research results be published, including if the study was ended early, why, and what the results were at termination, doctors, patients, and the media would have access to much clearer, complete, and accurate information. As a caveat, I would suggest that more dangerous interventions, like procedures that take a healthy digestive system and surgically create an irreversible disease state, or drugs that are meant to be taken for the duration of a patient's life, should require at least 10 years of follow-up with a plan for continuous follow-up throughout the lives of the patients. Next, I would suggest information in bold print at the beginning. For too long, the diet industry has been able to write conclusions and abstracts that make unsupported or inflated claims about their research, hiding the truth behind a paywall and or burying it in the discussion section, often with the help of some, let's call it creative, use of terminology and statistics. To avoid this, there is some information that I think should be required to be printed in bold type at the beginning in front of the paywall of weight loss studies if anything else from the study is available in front of the paywall. I actually would like to see a lot more information than this, but I'll start here as a bare minimum. First, dropout rate presented as a number and percentage. I have seen weight loss studies with incredibly high dropout rates, including more than 60% that were not mentioned in the conclusion, which touted intervention success. We deserve to know how many people actually made it through the study. For those who completed the full study, average weight of the participants and average weight loss presented in pounds and as a percentage of body weight, as well as minimum and maximum weight loss. This is basic information that should be easy to find. Next, a simple line graph showing the average weights of those who didn't drop out of the study throughout the entire study. We should be able to easily see and access alt text that tells us the trajectory of participants' weight. Was it sustained? Did it drop and then start rising steadily? Show us. Next, study demographics at bare minimum, the percentages of each race, ethnicity, and gender, including trans and non-binary folks, range and average age of participants, range and average weight of the participants, and inclusion and exclusion criteria. First of all, this could create some accountability for inclusion or lack thereof in a research world where both inclusion and accountability for it are often sorely lacking. It also gives us an idea of the extrapolatability of the study findings. Finally, weight and health disclosure. The uncritical use of weight as a proxy for health and weight loss as a proxy for increasing health has allowed the weight loss industry to consistently claim that their interventions increase health with no actual proof. So, if weight was the only outcome measured, a disclosure should be prominently included, saying something to the effect of, this study only measured changes in weight and thus can draw no conclusions about positive or negative impacts of the intervention on participant health. And if they do measure health outcomes, then the next thing I would recommend is a weight-neutral comparator group. Given that weight and health are two separate things, that weight loss interventions have inherent risks, that research has found that positive health impacts that happen during diets are likely due to the behavior changes and not the weight loss, 
The research shows that weight loss without behavior change, as through liposuction, does not create health benefits, and that there is a significant body of research showing the health benefits of weight-neutral interventions, where the focus is on supporting health directly rather than trying to manipulate body size as a path to health. Weight loss studies that try to claim positive health impacts of weight loss should be required to determine if any health changes are actually due to body size changes or if they're due to behavior changes. One possible way to do this is with a weight-neutral comparator group. This group would focus on health-supporting behaviors. One option might be the Matheson Four Habits, but could also include things like sleep, stress management, fat-positive social connection, etc. We know that weight loss interventions carry risk, including weight cycling and disordered eating eating disorders. So a weight-neutral comparator group would let us know if, as research suggests, the same or greater health benefits could be achieved without the risk of attempted weight loss. If they aren't required to, or if they fail to have a weight-neutral comparator group, then, at the very least, they should either have to explain the methodology they use to separate the impacts of the weight loss from the impacts of any behavior changes that participants undertook, or they should have to disclose something like, we are unable to discern if these health improvements were due to weight changes or the behavior changes that preceded them, preferably with a citation to Mann, Alstrom, and Tomoyama, 2013. If the research includes a placebo or no intervention comparator group, then a weight-neutral comparator group should also be included. Since its inception, the weight loss industry has been allowed to ride roughshod over any reasonable concept of research methods, ethics, and best practices. This has led to staggering profit for them, deep and abiding weight stigma and misinformation in the healthcare system, and massive harm to higher weight people. It has to stop, and obviously it never will if we continue to leave it up to the weight loss industry and those conducting their research to do the right thing. I also want to point out that there are researchers who aren't weight loss industry shills who have simply been so indoctrinated to the current paradigm that they aren't able to see the issues with the research they're producing. Regardless, if we want ethical weight science research that produces useful information, we are going to have to force that to happen, and I think the three demands above are a good place to start. Did you find this post helpful? You can subscribe for free to get future posts delivered direct to your inbox, or choose a paid subscription to support the newsletter and the work that goes into it, and get special benefits. Go to weightandhealthcare.com and click subscribe.